Welcome back to the Messy Reformation. My name's Jason Rice. I'm the lead pastor at Faith Community CRC in Beaverdam, Wisconsin. My co-host is Willie Cronkey. He's a member at Pease CRC in Pease, Minnesota. We're just a couple of guys who love the Christian Reformed Church and want to see Reformation happen in our denomination. And we realize that whenever Reformation has happened in the history of the church, things get messy. And after this past synod, things are really starting to get messy in the Christian Reformed Church. So we're taking the opportunity to have conversations with pastors throughout the Christian Reformed Church to find out what's going on in our denomination, but also to talk about what Reformation might look like. If you haven't already, take a moment, click subscribe so you don't miss any of our upcoming content. We are dropping episodes every single Sunday evening. We also want to say thank you to everyone who sponsored us on Patreon. We're slowly making our way to our modest goal of 20 sponsors at $5 a month. If you appreciate what we're doing and want to help us continue to put out content, head on over to patreon.com slash themessyreformation. You can also support us by sharing our content. I'm a terrible self-marketer and need your help. If you know of anyone who would benefit from listening to this content, let them know about the Messy Reformation. Also, let them know about our newest announcement, the Hall of Tyrannus. We're really excited about this new opportunity to disciple reformers for the CRCNA. If you'd like more information on this, head on over to themessyreformation.com and look for the Hall of Tyrannus. With all that said, we're going to get to this week's episode, which is part one of our conversation with Rob Braun. So, Rob, why don't you just kick us off, tell us a little bit about yourself and uh, the church you're at and uh, about your family as well. Well, um, I'm at Bethel Christian Reformed Church in Princeton, Minnesota, by Pease. Everybody seems to know Pease, Minnesota, and uh, we're about 10 miles from them. Um, I've known Jason since, well, we probably, you're pretty young when I knew you. Yeah, I was 15. I was 15 when I came to the church, so. Oh, were you? I thought you were younger Okay, I knew your dad. He was on council. So I know most of your family, right? <laughs> so, yeah. It's a, the Ozarks here, right? I'm the only one not related. And, um, and then, um, but I came from a, a Lutheran background. I, as a kid in Minneapolis, I, uh, I went to a Lutheran church where we memorized Luther's smaller catechism, the whole thing, and all the scriptures, not just the words, the scriptures. And it did me well because it stuck with me. Um, mm-hmm. it, was, it was like tattooed in my brain. So later on, when we moved to Bloomington, the pastor of that church was very liberal. And he, uh, in the first, in our confirmation class, I'm 15, right? 14, 15. He starts it off with the telephone thing. He writes down a message, right? And then he whispers a message into the air. There's 15 kids in the room. And then everybody whispers the message from kid to kid. And by the time it gets done, the last kid, he rewrites the message. And of course, it's totally different. And then he says, that's how the Bible was written. Mm. And I remember sitting there thinking to myself, then why am I here? Yeah. <laughs> that was my first thought. I go, if it's that unreliable, why am I here? I mean, really. And I and after, and literally it was the beginning of the end for, for uh, my walk with, with Christ. I, uh, I really turned my back on the faith. And, I, and it was the hippie era, so I hippied out and uh, get, you know, got involved in all the stuff that had to do with that. And uh, Anyway, eventually, um, I uh, had friends who came to Christ. A lot of them Vietnam vet- veteran friends, because I'm mm-hmm. of that era. And um, they started evangelizing. Me. And uh, 
and they had a commune. These are Minnesota guys. They, they, they had a commune out in Coeur d'Alene, Idaho. And anyway, I, so I ended up going out there and recommitted my life to Christ. They, they, those guys really made an impact on me, uh, a powerful impact. Their witness, um, their walk with Christ, it was just amazing. And, uh, and it really impacted me and many of my friends, me and my high school friends, we whole bunch of us went out there. must have been 20, 25 people from Minnesota went out there and came to Christ. And we came back, joined a charismatic church in, in Eden Prairie, and then started evangelizing uh, our friends here. And, and it was that this is that time, the Jesus movement, right? Where, where it was amazing how people were coming to Christ. It, it was, it's hard to explain it, that it was, it was, barely had to do anything and we had people coming to our meetings committing their life to jesus it was just an astounding time and, and, and experience that's always stayed with me ever since then um after high school i uh, i i before that i i had traveled to europe and, uh, and you know hippied out and all that like i said and uh anyway see I, i'm trying to keep myself organized anyway uh I went to college and I went to Israel during the Yom Kippur War because they needed help. And I, they, and plus I, they paid for, I, I paid for the airplane ticket. They paid for everything else, the Israeli government. And I worked on the kibbutz on the Lebanese border in northern Israel. And it was still, the war was still on. And we went through a couple of terrorist raids. Um, and then, uh, then after that, uh, when the war was over, that later that summer, I went to, uh, um, I lived in Jerusalem for a while, and then I went down to Europe again, and, and then went to Labrie in Switzerland. I went to school in Switzerland, where Francis Schaeffer, Dr. Francis Schaeffer, had a school. Uh, it's all chalets. It was a wonderful place. I met uh, Franklin Schaeffer there. I don't know if that's any street cred, and also uh, Frankie Schaeffer Jr. and others. There's is a great time for me, and learned a lot, and it oriented me towards Reformed faith. Uh, so anyway. Uh, Let's see. Then, oh, then, then I came back. I, I rejoined my charismatic church in, in Eden Prairie that I was in before, and eventually married my wife Tammy. We've been married forty-six years. We have three adult kids, two grandkids, um, and the church that we were part of was basically small groups. The small groups all met on Sunday, and because it was that era of, of just people flooding into the church. We, we were meeting in a school building and we had 2,000 people there wow. squished in there. You know, it was astounding. It's astounding. And um, because there was, <laughs> there was nothing to brag about. The music was very rinkety, right? The, all those songs in those days were three, four chords. You know, basically scripture songs. They're great songs, but nothing, nothing sophisticated. The preaching wasn't all that, um, you know, nothing in par with what I was reading in, from CRC materials at the time. And that was the thing. I eventually got introduced to some, uh, well, the writings of G.C. Burkow. And at that time, this is in the 70s, his uh, studies in dogmatics was coming out. One, one, one volume at a time, they were translating it, translating it in English. And I, so I was buying it volume after volume, rereading the volumes. And, and it really opened my eyes, changed my life again. And I, I became solidly, uh, not just reform, but CRC reform. And he, of course, in his writings, refers to uh, Bavink and uh, and uh, Louis Burkhoff and other writers here. And then, and then I got into them because of him. 
And I just, and, and here I'm a charismatic. Now, you eventually became a, a leader in a charismatic church teaching the Heidelberg Catechism and uh, and, and drawing my lessons out of uh, Burkhoff, Burkhoff and uh, Bobbington. Um, and uh, and that, I was part of that. So from 70, so then we, I moved up to uh to Zimmerman, or I didn't move. My father-in-law did, and a ch- church opened up that we took over. They offered us the church, and my father-in-law didn't really preach, and I was doing a lot of teaching at the time, so he asked me to come up and help him with the church, and I was a worship leader, so I did the worship, and I did uh, the, most of the preaching. Eventually, we moved that church to Princeton, and, and then soon after that, my, we, my family and I moved to Princeton, and we were up there for a couple of years, and then we... Uh, uh, I, I just, I just kept running into cra- the crazy stuff that was going on in the charismatic movement at the time. I don't want to go through the litany of stuff that was happening, and I kept fighting it. And they kept, you know, I had, they called me "stick in the mud, Rob," because I kept trying to prevent them from getting into heretical things, and they were heretical. And, um, and I finally just one pastor said to me, "You know, you're never going to make us the Christian Reformed Church." And I just thought to myself, you know. There's one down the street. Why don't you just go there? And that's what I did. And I joined Bethel and, um, and, and in Princeton there. Let's see. Yeah, and I, let, I wrote an article. I was part of a pastor's group that was made up of many different kinds of pastors, Baptists, Charismatic, uh, Lutherans. And they asked me to write an article why I, I, I left the Charismatic movement to become part of the uh, Christian Reformed Church, and, and I want to say some of my charismatic friends felt I, I abandoned the faith by doing that. I, I walked away mm-hmm. from, yeah, they looked at it that way, and so I wrote a, 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 a like an article that's called Crisis of Conscience, and the basic thing was, um, it's real simple, really, it was, um, there's two commandments that, that we are to um, worship only God, right, and then also, we're not to take, we're not to take some are three commands. We're not to take God's name in vain, and we're not, and we're not to uh, bear a false witness. And my mm-hmm. problem with the charismatic movement is it was hardly a meeting I went to then, where people were saying, "Thus saith the Lord," and it, you knew for sure it was not the Lord, and therefore mm-hmm. they were putting words in God's mouth, and it was just it became such a crisis of conscience for me. I just finally said, "You know, that's enough. I can't do it. I can't." This battle is just too much for me. So eventually, um, I joined a, a CRC. I became a licensed exhorter. Eventually, I became a commission pastor. I was one for 10 years. My commission pastorship had to do with my charismatic church um, work because they asked me to come back and help them. And many of their members ended up joining our Bethel church as a result of that. Um, and then um, I've been all over the years heavily involved with home missions. Uh, I've been, I am a classical prayer coordinator. I've been to over 30, you know this, Jason. I've been over, I love classes. I do. I love the fellowship. I go as often as I can. I've been to at least 30, probably more classes, meetings. Um, and also Senate, I've only been to Senate twice, 97 and 2022, where Jason went with me. Yeah. And on top of it, I coach hockey for a little bit. Yeah. <laughs> I worked in a warehouse. I was a warehouse worker. Um, I work for uh, Frito-Lay and I work for Walmart. I'm still retired, but I still work part-time for Walmart because a little extra money, travel money. Yeah. 
Yeah. Amen. I, yeah, I love, uh, I love the whole story. And I know because you and I go way back, we've had a lot of these conversations. You could have dove deeper into all of that. I thought I'd leave that to you. Yeah. <laughs> where you yeah. And it's hard to know where to, where to jump in and out there because there, there's so much that, you know, all of the time you spent in Israel, I know how that has kind of shaped and formed you and, and all of the time you spent in the charismatic church too has formed you. Uh, but one of the questions I want to ask is, what was it that about the reformed faith that that attracted you to it, to the well, point where you were teaching it in the charismatic churches? One simple word: honesty. Mm. The, the, the theology, the reformed theology, and I, I there's a new so somebody in our church who just joined. She said the exact same thing. She she had a conversion to reformed faith too, and she said the same thing as I did. She goes, "The reformed writers are the most honest with Scripture." They just face up to what it's saying, and their theology fits that. And I, I think part of the problems our, our our church now has is that lack of what I consider intellectual honesty with what we claim to believe to what we're trying to weasel into our denomination. Yeah, I mean, that was my whole draw was the, the, the intellectual honesty of the reform writers and how they approach scripture. I read, for example, one of the things that opened the door for me, I read Charles Finney's systematic theology. Mm -hmm. That's probably the most dishonest handling of the Bible I've ever read. And mm -hmm. then I jumped into, well, um, Burkhoff and if, if there, his systematic theology. It's like the best Bible study I've ever read. I mean, he just, every point, everything he says, he gives biblical references. And it's a good tool for preaching because you hear that question, you go in there and you can, he, he has an amazing, um, so anyway, I, and I've said that many times, I, there's nothing better for a Bible study than just Burkhoff. Amen. Yeah. And actually just to build on that, I'm right now, I've, I've used Burkhoff for Bible studies over the years. You know, we, we had it kind of structured a bunch of the Bible studies we did with uh, our youth ministry back in Minnesota. But even now I've got a group of young men and we're going through just the attributes of God right now. And it's all structured by Burkhoff and all of this scripture that he uses in there. And we're just going through all the scripture passages and talking about them and coming to a clear understanding of God. It's a great, great tool for just yeah. small group Bible study. Well, I'm going to, I'm going to promote something. It's free. I did a, and you, you were part of it. Um, my Belgian confession, um, yeah. by, which is, it's kind of, um, it's a Bible study, really, is what it is. I put all biblical references to all the statements of the Belgian Confession, because that's what they are. They're mm -hmm. biblical statements. And sadly, nobody's ever seemed to have done that. So I put all the biblical references to all the statements. And it's actually both a good devotional, as well as a, a, a good Bible study, mm -hmm. just like Burkhoff that way. I, it's, I think it's a shame that more people don't read um <laughs> what we supposedly believe, yeah. especially in our confessions. Because the other day I, I, I was asked to do a devotion for our eldership. And I did Article 7, Sufficiency of Scripture. And I said, yeah, I know most of you guys don't don't spend a lot of time in our confessions. So I thought I'd read this to let you know what we're supposed to believe. Because <laughs> yeah, it has everything to do with what happened for me yeah. in the last synod. So. Exactly. Well, 100%. And it's, it's really a sad it is a sad state of affairs in the church that we hold to these confessions. We call them the three forms of unity, um, but really most most of our office bearers really don't know them. I mean, the pastors should know them, but I even know pastors who don't know them well. 
Um, but even a lot of our elders and deacons are saying, wow, I don't know, I've never really read that. And that's really, I know you've said this over the years. I mean, whose fault is that? Yeah, you know, it really exactly. is a rebuke of us as ministers of the word that we need to be doing a better job of, of teaching our elders and deacons the confessions because well, they were changing our um, our uh, oath of office, you know, what do you call it? The uh, when you sign into classes and to synod- yeah, the covenant for office bearers, yeah, but they, what was it before? It used that? to be the form of subscription, yeah, during they changed it, and I wrote an article protesting that. They printed that. I never expected the banner because I've talked to you. I get printed in a banner a lot. And uh, and there's a trick. To, I shouldn't say this publicly, but there is a trick to it. Ahead, this one was not publicly. part of the trick. I actually was was saying this is insane what we're doing. And uh, and it was over that. It was over, you know, and I because that's where you got it from, is that article. I, I said, we have people in every church who studied these things. Why don't they educate their people to what we believe? Yeah. Are we ashamed of them? I, I just, I mean, for me, they're the greatest strength of what we are. It's, yeah. it's just heartbreaking for me that for the love I have for them, that others don't share this deeply as I do. Yeah. I've quoted you without quoting you um, on this podcast numerous times as saying, I remember you saying when you, when you came from the charismatic church into the Christian reformed church, you were so excited to be part of the Christian reformed church, the church of the, the three forms of unity, the church of Burkhoff. And then you got into the church and you were like, nobody knows this stuff. Nobody cares about this stuff. It's so frustrating to me. Yeah. Well, the, the pastor then was pastor Paul Salzer. And um, he was excited that here uh, is a guy that off the streets that is, it, it, you know, has like a seminary level understanding of what we believe in, and, and uh, a warehouse worker. And uh, but I think I don't think that did me any good with the rest of the people that grew up CRC, because mm. a lot of people at that time, this is the early '90s, were just they look at the CRC as being stagnant and not going anywhere and being no life in it. And, um, and they grew up with the catechism and it became almost empty to them, like rote knowledge. Mm-hmm. And so they didn't savor the life of it. Like I did as an outsider. Right. So um, it, it, there's always, I think a friction because even to this day, there's a friction with people over the way I, I look at our beliefs because I have such passion for it. And, and there's, you know, some that just wish we wouldn't be that, quite that passionate about, you know, the wonders of the, of the three forms of unity, as you said. Yeah. yeah. And then it makes you wonder, like, what do they want us to be passionate about then? Right. I mean, yeah, I mean, if we believe the three forms of unity are a representation of God's word, an accurate depiction of what God's word teaches, we should be passionate about those things. And if we're not passionate about what God is saying then what should we be passionate about? I'm good. I'm preaching this Sunday and part of it, it's about prayer, but I'm making a point that, uh, you know, where Paul says, and it's uh, Romans 1, 17, 16, 17, but 17, he says, I, I, um, <laughs> I just went blank on it. I, I am um, with the gospel and the power of the gospel for his, the salvation for all those who believe. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, Paul was, passionate because he had first had a firsthand experience of seeing the power of the gospel change people's lives mm-hmm. and he's writing to basically greek communities who were not exposed to judaism hardly at all and it's all of a sudden a strange religion 
the Jewish Messiah comes in with the Jewish holy book, and they're and people are hearing this message, and especially in the Greek world, as much the Greek world of Paul's time was much like our world is today. The religions of it had prostitution, both heterosexual and homosexual, and it's saturated. In fact, homosexuality was so um, so prevalent amongst the Greeks that the Romans, when they talked about somebody somebody being homosexual, they in, in Latin would say he follows the Greek way. <laughs> that's, mm. that's how I mean that's how they looked at it, and yeah. and that's where Paul was. So he was exactly where we are at. So there's for us to have to excuse ourselves because it isn't what we're believing isn't relevant to what the culture is doing. It's nuts. We're in the same culture that Paul was in. Why? And there's no reason not to believe there's a power in the message of the gospel for that. So, uh, and, and, you know, I've had the experience myself and others of just being profoundly changed by the yeah. words of the gospel. So it's, it frustrates me that way too, that people sometimes when they, it's like anything, you just, you get so used to it that it loses its, its savor, right? It loses yep. its, yeah. yeah. And I think, I think you're right. And uh, like one of the things I've, I've noticed is it's not just like a lack of passion for the God's word or a lack of passion for the confessions. It's really a lack of understanding the power of the gospel to transform lives and and when we don't realize or don't actually believe that the gospel is the key to transforming lives, um, then our church just becomes a social club, right? Or a political activist club or whatever, trying to transform lives ourselves or trying to transform communities and stuff ourselves apart from the gospel when really the gospel is at the core. And, and when you get that right, then the other things kind of fall in place. But when you lose the understanding that the gospel is the power of God to save people um, and to transform lives and to change hearts, then uh, and then it really does change the way you you do church. It changes the way you read scripture. Changes, it changes everything, doesn't it? Well, let me give you an example. Of, it's something, the Trinity, for example. We And our church of Bethel, we had a men's group and they had invited an outside speaker, not a part of our church, to talk on the Trinity, but he was talking on the problem of the Trinity because in the end, he, it turns out he didn't believe in it and he was the guest mm. speaker. And so um, I was invited to come. <laughs> so God bless you, the, a couple of guys and said, Rob, you better come to this. So I came and yeah, it was modalism. He is that, you know, the, uh, the, the apostolic movement, the Pentecostals, the Jesus is the Jesus is the Father. Jesus is the Son. Jesus is Holy Ghost, three in one. I don't know if you ever heard that. They they have that kind of very non-trinitarian view of uh, what we call the Trinity, and uh, and so I've been. That's a new thing I've been trying to do. You know, if we, for example, and many would say, believing the Trinity is a saving issue, which I believe is. Well, how many people could can talk about it? Can biblically explain it? And that was what I found out in that room. Here's Bethelites who've been, or been most of these people, if not all of them, had grown up in some church, and all those churches were Trinitarian, and none of them were aware of the heresy the guy was promoting. Yeah. So it's just well, there was a couple that jumped in because I was fortunately wasn't alone on that, and um, it, it, it disturbs me. And, it, and you know, and this is a challenge I say to all pastors. How often do you preach on the on the Trinity itself? Is that mm -hmm. not a vital part of what we believe? 
Yeah. I mean, have you ever gone through, and I just went through in my catechism class, we got on that topic of the Trinity. And I said, well, let's read the Athanasian Creed, one of our creeds. How many of us have done that? As a Lutheran in the old liturgy, that parts of the Athanasian Creed were part of our liturgy. And I was unaware of that till I started digging into it later on in my life. Mm-hmm. I thought, well, that was part of our liturgy. They used to incorporate that. So I already knew a lot of it. Well, again, in the church today, how, how often does anybody hear anything about it? Yeah, well, even to, to bring Bavink in, I mean, Bavink says like the Trinity is the kind of the crimson cord running through his entire systematic theology. He thinks, you know, his entire systematic theology rests on the ground of, of the triune God. He has a book called The Doctrine of God. It's probably the best book I've ever read on the Trinity. Mm. It's just, it's, uh, again, it's one of those books that changes my life. I, <laughs> I always tempted, I should write this guy. Oh, he's dead, I guess. <laughs> I can't yeah. do it. You, just, you just feel like you should connect with him because what he said made such an impact on the way you, yeah. you view, view things. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we'll have to talk to him in eternity. Amen. <laughs> Amen. Amen. Yeah. Well, I want to I want to shift gears a little bit and I want to talk uh just about the the CRC in general. Um and actually I want to set set this conversation up a little bit because I don't know if I've ever um said this like full out publicly, but you know, R- Rob and I have referenced how he and I go kind of way back and we I kind of grew up in the church he was in, but but Rob has been a, a mentor to me over the years. And and I would say, you know, Rob was when I went to into seminary and did the distance education program, I knew that I needed someone with a theological knowledge to kind of come alongside me and mentor me in person since I wasn't going to get that on campus. And so I had reached out to Rob. And so we've been doing this mentorship for a long time. But but one of the things that Rob had told me way back, actually, when I was debating on which seminary to go to, I was getting frustrated with the direction of the Christian Reformed Church and debating going into a different denomination, like wondering whether I should even stick in the CRC because I was frustrated about the direction. And uh, I remember Rob saying, Jason, back in the 90s, you know, everybody left, all the conservatives left for the URC, and they really left us, you know, that left us without an opportunity to kind of fight for reformation here. Let's not do that again, or the CRC's toast. We need people to stay and, and fight for reformation in the CRC. And so um, that's kind of been, he, he convinced me to stay in the CRC and to stay and try to fight for reformation here. And so really it's because of kind of our relationship that we've had over the years that kind of brought me to the point of eventually even starting this podcast and saying, okay, now it's time for reformation. And uh, one of the things, though, so that kind of leads up to a comment you had made earlier. Um, You've only been to two synods, um, but both of them were very significant synods. So 97 97 was a significant synod and and 2022 was a significant synod. And so I I guess I'd just love to hear your perspective on um, like what, what were some of the the similarities and differences you experienced between the Synod of 97 and the Synod of 2022? Well, I, I ironically, because I, the, this, the last two banners that you put, I have articles in them. So they, they like my writing. And then before um, Synod, I said, well, I'm going to Synod. You want me to write my experience about Synod, right? Mm-hmm. And they go, well, yeah, write it. We'll see what it says. Well, they didn't like what it said. Yeah. <laughs> and it was because, and I, everything you were saying, I was so excited. Uh, to see the change in our church that young men and, and women young because we had a 
a woman who really felt alone at our table weeping yeah. because she couldn't talk find anybody other women to talk to uh who was very conservative on things and um anyway but to see this movement of guys that are 30 years younger than me you know all of a sudden changing our direction a way i didn't expect to happen in a conservative biblical way back to the roots back to the roots of what our, our denomination the thing that brought me into our denomination that the, the intellectual um, honesty of scripture i just i just i was just so excited and it's fun because i'm I, at synod were a bunch of, of son, the sons of pastors i've known over mm. the years right that were there and uh, and they kind of knew me and now they really know me because I, I got so excited to run into them and um and i and then and the comparison that you're getting to is 97 so actually the decision was made in 95 but it, you know there was a process then and, and so 97 was when it was brought in Right, that's when it was brought in mm-hmm. and happened. And then that synod, another thing happened. They wanted to make God male and female, you know, non-gender mm-hmm. kind of thing. And fortunately, I speak Hebrew, right? So I mm-hmm. stood up, and behind me was another guy, a professor, I think, who spoke Hebrew too. And he was arguing for this change. And I spoke up and looked at him and said it to synod. I said, number one, there is no neutral gender in Hebrew. Either everything, chairs, windows, cars, they're male or female. Everything is. So that, to say there's some kind of neutral gender for God, it's not Hebrew. And number two, mm-hmm. I said, Jesus, the Lord's Prayer, our Father, he ta- He set the you know, standard down. So that was a big thing there. We fortunately pushed that back, and I kept thinking that was going to come back again. I still expect, along with the HSR uh, report coming back, that might be one of the issues. Um but anyway, 97, and I wrote this in an article, I think it got published by you guys somewhere, um, that I sent to the banner and they didn't publish. Um, I made the point that of all, all the people who were basically my contemporaries that were at the 97 uh, Synod, uh, if that group of people had voted on the ACRSR in this Synod, it would have been split right down the middle, for sure. But mm-hmm. to see three quarters to two thirds of everybody there and mostly young guys vote for the hsr it was such a warm feeling for me i mean i'm i can't i'm all excited about because it was i it was why i stuck with the crc because i i have such a love for its heritage and i now i have a a great hope now a a realistic one of, of your generation carrying that on and it is why I stuck it out. Like I told you before, I was disappointed back in the nineties with all these guys. I highly respected. They, there was a lot of, back then there wasn't the internet. So they, everybody had periodicals. I had them all. I love their writing. I love where they were at, but they decided that they're giving up the fight. And I just thought, you know, how heartbreaking yeah. there, there was enough of us. There was enough of us then to, to, to hold the tide. So yeah. God bless you guys for coming yeah. back and doing that for us. Well, and it was interesting. I talked to someone, so this is like a few steps removed, um, but I had talked to someone who had talked to, uh, I forget if it was Michael Horton or Bob Godfrey, right? They were part of the group that left. Yeah. And, uh, after this past synod. Hey, they, they wanted Godfrey at that synod, or the synod before yeah. that, to be the banner editor. Oh, man, would that have been amazing? They did that on the floor. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah, that would have been great. I would have loved God. Yeah, Yeah, we would have had a whole different different ball game here. But but anyway, somebody had talked to them after this 
past synod and they said something along the lines of if we would have known that this next crop of young conservative men were coming we maybe would have stayed but at the time we thought there there is like this denomination is dead and there's no new generation being raised up and so so we're leaving but they were saying thankfully god has raised up another generation and and uh, they're conservative and and they're bringing about reformation here but but it was interesting to hear that from them that at that time they didn't they felt like there was no hope and nobody was coming up and so and even you said that you said that even if they would have probably voted on the HSR back in 97 it probably would have been split more back then um but now we've God's been doing this kind of work of of reformation in the CRC to where I mean, I do think that this two-thirds to three-quarter vote is very representative of what I'm finding out as I'm talking to pastors throughout the Christian Reformed Church. Like, that's a pretty clear picture of where our denomination's at. Or heading. I mean, or that's, this is, that's, a, that's important. That's important because, you know, Willie, who helps you, um, we need more guys like that. There's guys, I, I was going to work with a couple of guys, they're Willie's friends up in Pease that are a lot like Willie. And, mm-hmm. it's, you know, it's the old CRC. Like, I, m- I remember talking to some of the, you know, this is back in the 90s. So I'm talking to guys that are older than I am now. I'm almost 70. And back then they were saying how how deep the, the sermons were mm. of the pastors back then, before television, before radio. This was their week. I mean, the, the preaching was the entertainment for the week. And people yeah. took it serious. And it was very deep stuff. It was not, it was very theologically thick. These farmers expected that, you know, yeah. where today they go, oh, you're just over everybody's head. Well, it's true. And that's sad. Yeah. That, the gen, you know, the, in our world that's so uh, entertaining itself to, to death, the Christians have uh, fallen in line with the world more for entertainment than they have for, you know, the power of the gospel. That's all we have for this week. Stay tuned next week for part two of our conversation with Rob Braun. But until then, don't forget this is Christ Church, and he bought it with his blood. And we've been warned that wolves will come in trying to destroy the flock. So keep a close watch on your life and on your doctrine. Reach the word in season and out of season. And keep fighting the good fight in this messy reformation.